This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are as a people, inherently and historically, opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial conflict. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, Please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making this program possible. You are the ones who donate the first segment to those who cannot afford it. Tonight's special guest is Dr. Kirby Surprise. And yes, that's his given name, Surprise. We will discuss his book, Synchronicity, The Art of Coincidence, Change and Unlocking Your Mind. This is one of those topics I have been interested in for years. I was waiting for the right guest to discuss it, and I think we did. Do you ever wonder why there are so many coincidences around you? You think of someone and the phone rings, and it's that person? Or you think of something and someone on TV mentions it at that moment? We all experience this probably on a daily basis. Get ready to unlock an innate ability you've always possessed which was not fully understood until now. Dr. Kirby Surprise will be with us shortly. To listen to the full interview and all of our interviews, it's about time. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately and will have access to everything we have to offer since December 2008. Audio, video, and even the very special Manticore Forum. And when I say special, I mean it. Those of you who have never been part of forums are always surprised to find such a great place to be yourself and share information with people around the world. It's one of your benefits when you become a Veritas member. 
Subscribe today. And don't look anywhere else for MMS. We have a great source, and you can buy it right from our Veritas store. Now, speaking of the Veritas store, the 8GB metal-cased USB drive with Seasons 1, 2, and now 3 with bonus material are now back. In Season 3, I have lots of PDFs. Too many to explain, but it's great material, as well as a NASA video NASA doesn't want you to watch. Someone bought the video years ago at the NASA store, but NASA called him asking the customer to return it. Apparently, NASA was not supposed to sell it. Well, they never sold it again. It's included with a USB drive containing Season 3. And the book Veritas Scriptum, The Truth is Written, Volume 1, with over 400 pages, is now available too. We never know what could happen to the internet, so slowly I'm making our transcripts available in book format. If you're listening and cannot afford a subscription and are ready, willing, and capable to transcribe our shows, click on the free subscription link of our website and get in touch with us. This is how we'll continue making the transcripts available in book format. And to get in touch with me, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Did you know you have the amazing ability to create coincidences? Synchronistic events happen when your inner and outer worlds seem to mirror each other. Your thoughts and feelings, your memories and experiences are reproduced in the events around you as coincidences. It's not just you with this ability. It's everyone. This is not some world of science fiction or fantasy. You are doing it at this very moment while listening to my voice. This seemingly magical ability goes largely unnoticed, unexplained and misunderstood. This ability is real. It's not magic, but it is the core of most myths and magic. Tonight's interview will help you focus on powers you already use it will show you in terms of real science and psychology how you create the meaning of synchronistic events around you and show you how to use amazing abilities you already have. To learn how you already shape the universe around you, Dr. Kirby Surprise is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Crystal Clark, and you're listening to Veritas Radio. Yes, Surprise is his real given name. Dr. Kirby Surprise received his doctorate in counseling psychology in 2007 from the Institute for Integral Studies in San Francisco and his master's degree in advanced psychodynamic and transpersonal studies from John F. Kennedy University. He worked for 14 years as a social worker in impoverished areas before returning to graduate school. 
Dr. Surprise received his license as a psychologist in 2009 and currently works in an advanced outpatient program for the state of California. He is a professional communicator, having given workshops and lectures on his subject, and conducts psychoeducational groups on a wide variety of subjects for the state of California. The inspiration for his writing comes from a lifelong interest in psychology, metaphysics, philosophy, history, science, and his work with his clients. His interests in synchronicity stem from experiencing frequent and surprising synchronistic events, or SE, and needing a working understanding of the phenomena. The model of SE, he teaches, was a response by SE themselves, to his asking, how does synchronicity work? And directly from Northern California, in the beautiful area of San Francisco, I would like to welcome Dr. Cooper Surprise. And by the way, if you want to learn more about Dr. Surprise, visit his, his website, howsynchronicityworks.com. He's also the author of the book, Synchronicity, The Art of Coincidence, Change and Unlocking Your Mind. Welcome, Dr. Surprise, to Veritas. How are you? Fine. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. As I was telling you offline, I really love this book. First of all, because we use the word synchronicity all the time, and I wanted to have a guest who could explain to us, is this a natural phenomena? Is this something that, that we actually manifest? But first of all, I have to ask you right off the bat, Dr. Surprise, really, doesn't it seem yeah. strange for someone named Surprise to be writing a book on coincidences? Yes, it does. And, you know, believe me, the irony is not lost on me. Uh, but, you know, it, it's my family name. And, by the way, may I call you Kirby? Yeah. Thank you. What exactly are synchronistic events? Um, synchronistic events happen when some of your internal states seem to match up with some external experiences. Um, for instance, in, uh, in psychiatry, we have a term called thoughts of reference where people believe that their events in the environment are referencing their internal states or their thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, some people will say, well, the t TVs and televisions talk to me. I'll be thinking something, and then the uh, person there will comment on it, you know, what yes. I'm saying, as if they're in the room with me. Or people will say, um, you know, I was just thinking about somebody I hadn't talked to for years, and the phone rang. Or I was driving down the street thinking about whether or not I should get my groceries or not, and a license plate passed me that said good food. Something like <laughs> right, that. yes. Right, and um, they, they actually occur all the time. And it happens to me all the time, and my question is, do we actually manifest this, or is this, dare we call it, part of our destiny to, to converge at the precise moment? Um, I'm not so much into destiny myself. I'm sort of scientifically oriented. Right. And uh, two things became apparent about synchronicity. One is our sort of evolutionary niche. We, we developed a brain that matches for patterns in the environment. And we're constantly filling in pieces that are missing and modifying what we're actually experiencing. So to some degree, what you've been consciously searching for, you know, winds up highlighted around you because we only actually consciously get to see a thousandth of the patterns that are actually there. Most of them get filtered out by the brain automatically. So there is a psychological component to synchronicity, which is you notice more of the things you're interested in. But there also is an actual maybe 3 to 5% change in the environment that you cause depending on what you're paying attention to you know, and what your internal processes are. So the book itself contains both a psychological explanation that's grounded 
and a, an explanatory fiction that works with modern psychology and physics to come up with a, a possible explanation on how we do this. And you have lots of examples that you cite on, on the book, and, and I know many people will relate because this happens on a daily basis to people. But is the ability to detect synchronistic patterns in our life innate in us? You say the ability to create synchronistic events is built into our nature. Yeah, I think it's an evolutionary skill. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, like I said, in the natural world, you know, human beings are pretty vulnerable. You know, we don't have claws and teeth. We're not very strong. Right. But our evolutionary niche was to create, you know, these brains that can process patterns. You have inside your skull the universe's most advanced known supercomputer. You know, your brain is a biological computer. And what it does to help you survive is it looks at these trillions of bits of information your sensory neurons provide you every second, and it constructs a world for you. So, for instance, most people think they're actually looking at the outside world at the moment, when, in fact, that's not the case. What you're experiencing is a representation of the world that's built by the brain, and it's constructed in memory. A construction is not just as the senses reported is. It filters out huge amounts of information that it considers irrelevant before piping it forward to us. We're in the front part of the brain. And it also adds things into patterns to try to complete them for us. So most of what we do, you know, is automated. So this sort of, you know, people have this idea in uh, science fiction that someday we'll have holodecks, these sort of Star Trek rooms where you walk in and the universe is created around you. Right. Well, we actually do that. The brain does that for us right now. What you're living in is a neurological representation of the sensory data that's coming in, and it's highly modified. One of the reasons people don't see synchronistic events is since they don't consider them important or possible, the brain filters them out. If you look for them, the unconscious automated processes begin to send the information to the conscious mind again. But this is absolutely normal. As hunters, when we were, say, on the grassland savannas in Africa, we'd be confronted with, you know, vast areas of waving grass with sunlight patterns and shadows and all kinds of animals out there hidden, trying to hunt, trying to find us, trying to avoid us. And the brain's job was to become expert at picking out the right patterns. And we also developed the ability to actually change those patterns to some degree. Maybe it's about 3 to 5%. You know, and that's been shown in research, um, re research by, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, uh, people like J.B. Ryan, who uh, tried to see if we were capable of influencing random events and found out that, yes, in fact, we are. It's not an absolute skill. One of the uh, errors that New Agers make is uh, they go into this, we create our own reality model. And that's not really the case. You know, neurologically, we do live in our representation, but we can influence reality. We don't actually create it. And this influence we have manifests as these coincidental synchronistic events. When you say that, uh, well, can we say that the, the brain deletes what we don't deem important? Is it a filter that we have? In other words, if you and I are standing in front of an object, we both see it differently based on the filter, which which means what we have learned through life. Is that is that a true statement? 
Yes, absolutely. In fact, historically, we have a record of the first uh, Spanish ships arrived in South America, mm -hmm. and the natives that stood on the shore looked at the ships and didn't know what it was. Not that they didn't recognize it, they couldn't see them, because the brain had no pattern to look at a Spanish galleon. Now, after several hours, the record says that one of their shamans, after right. staring at these ships, sort of finally figured out that it was a vessel, you know, the brain locked in enough of the pattern. Some people have had the experience of looking up in the sky and they see something very, very strange crossing the sky. And it's unrecognizable, it's a tiny object. But then eventually the brain locks into, oh, that's an airplane, just that the wings are at an odd pattern from here. And suddenly you recognize the object. Synchronicity happens, though, when our internal states get mirrored in the outside. And to some degree, we filter that out because we haven't yet recognized that as an important thing. That story of the, the natives in the Caribbean and so on that did not see or did not perceive the vessels, why is it that the, the shamans or the elders, that they were able to see it and not the others? Well, sort of the definition of a shaman is a wise guy, mm -hmm. to some degree. And um, there are people that are adept with playing with their consciousness about being interested in seeing other patterns, pushing the limits of, you know, of what's real. So they're sort of, you know, by presupposition, interested in seeing the unusual. And I remember at one point, the concept of uh, synchronicity and even other concepts used to be the butt of jokes. How is it that it, this is now being taken seriously? As you say, you know, modern science used to be laughing at the, uh, at the shamans and the clairvoyants and the mystics. Right. But um, in the late 90s, we solved the unified field theory. You know, we figured out mathematically how the universe actually works. We came up with string theory. It turns out the universe is a whole lot stranger than we ever imagined. And one of these odd points is, like for instance, Uh, it used to be sort of the butt of science fiction jokes that in alternative universes somewhere, Elvis is still playing Vegas. <laughs> right, yes. Right. Or uh, people remember shows like Star Trek used to do parallel universe shows where you have an evil Mr. Spock to deal with. Well, it turns out that it's not a joke. That there are an infinite amount of probable universes right now in the same space that we're in. That this is no longer a fantasy the leading physicists in the world are now telling us that literally, yes, Elvis is right next door performing in Vegas still, and every possible variation of reality actually does exist in the same space with us. So it's gone from being, you know, the purview of wise guys to the standard model in physics. It's almost as when... when people would say that the earth was flat. It took a lot of time before they accepted the reality. But people have been searching for the deeper meaning of their relationship to the world around them since the beginning of time. We can go back uh, 5,000 years ago to ancient Chinese civilizations and the I Ching, which was used to interpret patterns when yarrow sticks were thrown on the floor. Was this the first time in recorded history that synchronicity, in your opinion, would have been recorded? I think it's much older than that. Um, there are cave paintings in France that are maybe 30,000 years old, and one of them shows a shaman dancing in a stag mask. Hmm. I think synchronicity is the basic for all primitive belief in magic. 
I think that you know people notice that there's a connection between what they're thinking and feeling and the way events unfold in the environment. And they've been trying to take advantage of it for a very long time. Uh, divination systems, you know, like tarot cards or the I Ching, are trying to systematize this. They're trying to create a language between the conscious and the unconscious, sort of an agreed-upon meaning for coincidences, a way of communication between the conscious and unconscious. And uh, I think that synchronistic events that use the entire, basically, your universe to communicate with you are doing the exact same thing. It's sort of a language that different parts of the self use to communicate. And I want you to also tell us some of the stories. And there's one story, and I wonder if this is what triggered you to, to start into looking into this, the story about you watching the movie Carrie and what happened afterwards. Okay. Um, this is a movie about a moving house. Yes. Yes. Um, back when I was an undergraduate, um, I started experiencing a huge amount of, in, of synchronistic events. It was a, a, da a more than daily event that was actually a nuisance. It was so bad. And um, I couldn't figure out why this was happening. So one day I'm going to be dropping my friend off at the college to attend the class. And we're on our way and we're, you know, talking and joking. And there had been like a National Enquirer headline uh, about a house during an exorcism that had turned over on its side. And we thought that was hilarious. We were making jokes about how much fun it would be to be a writer on the National Enquirer and make up things like, you know, Alien has Pope's love child. <laughs> right. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. So I dropped him off, and I'm in the parking lot of uh, the State University of New York in New Paltz. And um, I'm sitting in the car, and uh, there's a grassy knoll in front of me. And about 50 or 60 yards away, there's a small cottage that they use for visiting faculty occasionally. And I'm listening to the radio, and there is an ad for the movie Carrie comes on. It's you know a movie in which a teenager finds out she has telekinetic powers, and it culminates in her crushing and destroying her family home. And I'm listening to this, and I'm looking at this little cottage, and being the sort of budding psychologist, I'm wondering, you know, we base our existence in the world on the fact that we have to reach out and operate on objects. You know, we're very physically oriented creatures. And I'm wondering what it would be like, how it would change you, if you could actually, without physically operating on the environment, be able to move things like that. You know, what would it feel like to be able to move a house? So I'm looking at this cottage, and I'm saying, God, you know, it really would be cool to find out what it would be like to roll a house that size over on its side. And as I'm watching, the house suddenly shudders. And it shakes, and it moves on its foundation, and it flips over on its side until the roof is now facing me. And, you know, I'm pretty astonished and freaked out by this time. And, um, you know, I first asked myself, is it possible I did that? And I went, no, absolutely not. <laughs> I don't believe it. I'm not buying it. The next question was, you know, am I asleep? Maybe I'm having, you know, a lucid dream. Did you wonder if there was anybody inside? No, actually, that didn't occur to me. I was too astonished by the house moving at that point. Um, so I you know, kind of determined I was actually awake, but then there was this problem. This house was still sitting there on its side. So I figured, okay, you know, let's do an experiment. If I actually did that, I want to see the house crush itself into rubble the way it did in the Carrie movie. So I'm looking at the house, and uh, it starts to buckle at the roof and cave in on itself, and there's 
two-by-fours crashing through walls and windows breaking. And, and by this time, I'm absolutely panicked because I can't believe this is happening. And then I see this flash of yellow paint above the house. And this huge bulldozer just sort of lazily climbs over the top of the house and smashes it flat and runs over it a few times, then starts loading the rubble into a bunch of dump trucks. All this equipment was invisible to me because, you know, the house was between me and it. So I realized suddenly that I just got my wish. You know, I want to know what it would be like to move a house. Synchronicity provided the experience. And you had the windows up and the radio on so you couldn't hear the bulldozer. Exactly, exactly. So I sort of um, was thinking about the Jungian answer of, well, this is, this is unthinkable, there's no explanation. And I said, no, there's a clear connection here. There's something I was thinking. And it happened in the environment. And if I can notice the connection, there's an explanation. And then I realized that, you know, the unconscious was involved and that I wasn't going to be able to consciously figure this out. So I asked the actual events. I asked synchronicity, okay, show me how you work. And then, you know, I spent um, a lot of years uh, playing with the events and sort of following the intellectual direction of, you know, read this, read that, what does this mean? until it became really clear that um, this wasn't a mysterious phenomenon. This was a completely explainable phenomenon. It's very real, and um, it's also kind of fun and useful. And I wonder, were you disappointed when you found out that it wasn't you, that it was a bulldozer? <laughs> no, I wasn't disappointed. I was extremely relieved. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I'm not... Um, that would have been an alteration of my reality. I think that would have been very difficult for me to deal with. I'm sure. And speaking of synchronicities, of course, we're going to be speaking of this uh, all night long, but I have to tell you one story that I just found right now on, on the news. It's about, we all know that Whitney Houston passed away a few days ago, but the day before Whitney Houston was found dead in her bathtub at the Beverly Hilton, her daughter, Bobby Christina, fell asleep in a bathtub in the exact same hotel. And according to sources, friends of Bobby Christina tried knocking on her door repeatedly Friday night, but she didn't answer. We're told they called security to get them to unlock the door and to help Bobby out of the tub. It happened on the same floor of the hotel where Whitney would be found dead the next day. We're told the room Bobby Christina was in was booked under Whitney's name. Now, isn't that another synchronistic story? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean... I don't have a full explanation for a lot of synchronicities. There are synchronicities that seem to be involved in groups, you know, or, or pretty objective. And I really don't have anything to say about them, except they're kind of astonishing and interesting. Um, the ones I focus on are the ones that uh, we can personally create. Right. And there's another story uh, with the parallels between Lincoln, President Lincoln and President Kennedy, as you have heard this story before, that Lincoln had a secretary uh, uh, named Clinton, last name's Clinton, and Lincoln had one, or vice versa, one called Lincoln. One was, uh, what was it, killed in a, in a warehouse? And uh, yeah, the, uh, Lincoln had a secretary named Kennedy. Right. Kennedy had a secretary named Lincoln. Um, one was shot in a theater and guy was captured in a warehouse. And one was shot from a warehouse and captured in a theater. Exactly. It's almost as if, as if history is, is prophetically being made for the future in a way. But you're claiming that not only are these events real, but that we all create them every day. And this is the part that I want the listeners to pay attention to. All right. 
we play a little game with your listeners for a second? Absolutely. Okay. So, I would like everyone listening to pretend that instead of, you know, us being in distant studio somewhere, we're actually in the room with you. And we're sort of able to read what you're thinking and feeling and know what's going on around you and that we're talking directly to you in the present moment. Now, one of the key things about synchronicity is these events uh, completely violate everything we understand about cause and effect. So, for instance, if um, I have a client who comes in who's been labeled as paranoid schizophrenic and says that they're talking to televisions and radios and the announcers and personalities are responding to them, uh, it's not an automatic given for me that the person is delusional. What they may be doing is using uh, these synchronistic events as a mirror they may actually be talking to themselves. The thing is that they've created mythology around them. It's usually the explanation, not the phenomenon, that causes difficulty. So I'd like to invite everybody to start producing their own synchronistic events by pretending that we're talking directly to you. So I lost the track of what the question was. Oh, <laughs> oh the question that I asked you? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you claim that not only are the, the these events real, but that we all create them every day, I guess we just don't notice. Yes, so it's a natural ability. Um, neurologically, the part of you that you consider yourself, that's aware of the room, what's going on around you, is actually a very small piece of the brain. It's about the size of a walnut. It's way up in the frontal lobes. The rest of the brain is pretty automated. Now, like I said, the brain is the universe's largest supercomputer. It actually constructs reality for us. It even gives us our idea who and what we are. But it's listening to what you're paying attention to constantly. And it's doing miraculous amounts of calculation to produce this reality that you're experiencing right now. And it's a very interactive system. It's not like this, you know, a bunch of jelly behind your eyes that doesn't do anything. It's alive. And it's conscious in its own way. And it's responsive. It's trying to help you survive. Now, it looks through patterns all the time. And it highlights things in the environment, and somehow, and I don't have a great explanation for what the physical, non-physical connection is, it tweaks the probabilities around you about 5% according to what you're thinking, feeling, and paying attention to. Now, this has been known for a very long time. Um, in science, the gold standard for experimental design is a thing called a double-blind experiment. Mm -hmm. In those experiments, Neither the subject of the experiment nor the guy conducting it knows what they're looking for. It's designed by somebody else. That's because we realized a long time ago that the act of observing something changes the outcome. So literally, when someone conducts an experiment, if they know what they're looking for, the results change. So I'm taking this a step further. I'm saying that not only do you change the environment, but you actually project your thoughts and emotions out into it and have them mirrored back to you. And this produces a 5 or 6% actual change in the events around you. We are the ones that are creating the synchronistic events. Do we actually create them or are we influencing them? Well, there's a jump here. You mentioned, you mentioned believing in flat and round earth previously. Right. Okay. So one of the things I'm saying is that there's another jump in awareness that we need to come to now. Einstein taught us that the Newtonian model of the universe, like clockwork, that's kind of fixed and just ticking along, 
wasn't exactly right. You know, it turns out that time is a variable. It changes according to how fast you're going. Um, speeds are relative. You know, things are not as fixed as we thought they were. They're not so much a clockwork. String theory came along and said something even different. There's not, there's not just one universe here. There's an infinite amount of probabilities. The thing I'm pointing out in the book is that metaphysics has been telling us for thousands of years that we are multi-dimensional beings. We're not just physical. Physics is now telling us that to be just a physical creature, there's at least 11 dimensions involved. I am saying that we exist not in one linear time sequence, but that every one of us right now exists over an almost infinite amount of probabilities at the same time. So, in science fiction, you know, the thing where you're jumping to one parallel universe to meet your evil twin, I'm saying that you don't jump anywhere. You already exist in a virtually infinite amount of these parallels right now. In fact, moving from one to the other is how we progress through time normally. Your attention, your emotions, what you're interested in, steer you through these probabilities. They slightly change the type of events that you're going to run into. And it's not, you know, an infinitely powerful thing. It's a couple of percentage points. But over a long period of time, that's very significant. Um, so what I'm trying to get people to do is realize that time is not as fixed as they think it is, and that there's a lot more to you than you think there is. Is there any, I have to ask you, is there any correlation between synchronistic events and, let's say, dowsing? Somebody who wants to douse for, for water or for answers to questions, is it, does dowsing have any variable in this equation? Well, you know, I don't, I don't have the ability to see the kind of energy that dowsing may be involved in. What I think is that when someone dowses, my best guess is that the unconscious has somehow access to the information. And that when the rod turns down to where the water is, it's the unconscious using the body's muscular system to mm -hmm. tell the conscious something that it needs to know. And I think that synchronicity works very much the same way. You can actually read information from the unconscious by looking at the patterns in the environment. Throughout the, the interview, I want you, if you could, quote some of the... the SE, synchronistic events on, that you cite in the book. And there's another interesting one about a, a man who wakes up uh, on his 55th birthday and looks at, at, at the clock at 5.55 in the morning. Can you take oh, it you from there? tell that story? Yeah, if you could. Okay. Um, this is a, what I use as an extreme example of synchronistic event. It's actually an old joke, okay? But things like this do happen. So a man wakes up, it's 5.55 in the morning. He turns on the TV, it's Channel 5, and it's the 5 o'clock news, and he remembers that it's his 55th birthday. He takes 50 minutes to get ready for work, takes the bus from 5th Street to his job at 555 5th Street, gets on the 5th elevator to the 5th floor, goes to the, guess, you guessed it, 5th door on the right, to his desk and sits down. Now by this time, being a bright fellow, he realizes that something is definitely up. And he's wondering, how do I take advantage of this? He looks on his desk, and the janitor has left a racing form. And he looks, and it's open to the fifth page. And there's a small pencil mark next to the fifth horse in the fifth race. And the horse's name is Your Lucky Five. 
and he figures it's a message from God. I'm going to be rich. So he takes out $5,000 and he calls his bookie and bets on the horse. He waits till 5 o'clock that afternoon, calls up his bookie and says, how did my horse do? The bookie says, well, he came in fifth. (laughs) Now, the point of the story is to demonstrate how people often mistakenly deal with synchronistic events. I would say that what's happened to the guy is it's his 55th birthday. He's probably got some anxiety about being 55 and not accomplishing his goals. And he's sort of obsessively focused on that fact. That concern gets projected out into the environment as synchronistic events dealing with the number 55. And he makes the mistake of believing that what's being mirrored from his concerns is a message somehow to him that's outside himself. So he places his bets on the synchronistic event when the real value was what it was telling him about his own processes. Very interesting. And a few months ago, and I wonder if you have an answer for this, a few months ago I conducted an interview with where we discussed the synchronicity of so many people seeing the number 11, mainly on clocks or or watches. Uh, You look at your computer and the clock says 11, 11. One of our listeners contacted me after the show aired telling me that he was riding his bike and listening to the interview. The moment I mentioned how we see the number 11 so much, he saw the number 11 right underneath him on the pavement as he's, as he's riding his bike. He almost fell off his bike. He had to return and take a picture with his cell phone and email it to me. Now, this happens all the time. People just call it a coincidence. Now, you say there's scientific method involved here. How, will we, how can we prove scientifically that this is not chance? Well, it's been done for quite a while now. Um... J.B. Ryan was a researcher and a psychologist in Duke University, and he started back in the 30s. Um, He wrote a book called Mind Over Matter. He uh, was just like a standard professor, and um, this guy comes into his office one day. This is paraphrasing his story. And he says, look, Doc, I'm a gambler, and I've noticed that I can change the odds on the dice coming up the way I want them. And I was uh, wondering if you'd be interested in, like, figuring this out. So instead of throwing the guy out of his office, Ryan says, okay, let's take out six pairs of dice in a notebook and see if you can do it. Make the number six come up more often than is probable. So, you know, if you throw six dice, the odds are you should come up with one number six each toss. So he has the guy throw the dice a hundred times, and he keeps track. And sure enough, the guy has got about a five or six percent above normal average of being able to make the number come up. So he tries it again. Sure enough, the guy is able to make the number six come up a little bit more often. Ryan becomes obsessed with this, figuring out what's going on here. At first he thought, well, there's some physical trick involved. So he isolated the dice so you don't actually touch them. He made machines that toss them. He tried different numbers of runs. And he continually found that people have this ability, you know, five or six percent, to tweak the events around them. Now, he went as far as to do dice, coin tosses, electrical currents, nuclear decay, the way mist settles on things. He tried a lot of things. And he did this, you know, for like 35 years. And, you know, this has been replicated. It's one of the most vexing problems, you know, sort of in psychology and physics. And he also found a more interesting pattern. So let's say you've got someone that's going to toss these dice a hundred times. At the beginning, 
say, the first 25 tosses, the person is able to pretty significantly influence the outcome. But as the trials go on, they run into, like, the next 25 or 30 tosses, their ability drops off. In the middle of the run, they're actually inhibiting their ability to make probability come up the way they want it. And towards the end, the curve comes back up, passes average, and again, they demonstrate an above-average ability to influence random events. And what Ryan realized was this curve is following the emotional pattern of the subject. Mm. In the beginning, they're excited. It's interesting. It's new. They want to know what's going to happen. They're paying attention. In the middle, they're bored. They're tired of doing it. It's a long way to the end. They really don't want to be there anymore. They went over with. It actually suppresses the effect that they're trying to cause. Towards the end, they're getting interested again. You know, the end's coming up. I'm going to see how I did. You know, they start to pay attention again. And again, the ability returns. So these patterns are following the emotional focus of the individuals that are causing them. Now, he did some other interesting experiments. He uh, got a bunch of gamblers and a bunch of preachers together to see if there was sort of a moral imperative here. No difference in the ability. Everybody demonstrated the same. Then he tried giving people cups of coffee to see if caffeine could affect the ability. And yes, indeed, you know, caffeine or amphetamine-like drugs increase the ability to produce the effect. Then he tried giving people a couple of drinks, which is a depressant. Yes, depressants lower the ability to, to create synchronistic events. So there's something physiological going on. They're directly linked to brain state. Now, Jung, who created the word synchronicity, his view was that these things are created by invisible archetypes that just cause your thoughts and environments to sort of coincide. Didn't believe in personal you know, effect on them, but couldn't explain any of this. What I'm saying is that there's not much to recognize about yourself in a, in a toss of a dice or a coin. I'm saying that your entire emotional thought and unconscious structure gets projected all the time. Your conscious mind, your unconscious mind, your transpersonal spiritual connection, all of it gets mirrored back. Now, if you're just wanting to throw dice, you're not going to get much information out of that. But the wider world, the everyday flow of information that you come in contact with, all those patterns out there reflect back to you some degree of all of these aspects of yourself and can be used as a wonderfully complex and rich mirror to create these events with. It's very interesting as I'm reading the book, I'm, uh, I have questions and in the moment I'm, the questions pop up, the next paragraph, you're answering them. So synchronistically right there, I was wondering if uh, exciting the brain with caffeine or depressing it with alcohol, if he had an effect, then boom, the next paragraph, you, you do discuss this. But having priests, one question came to mind, the power of prayer or the power of intention, which I think translates itself into energy. And I think that's what you're describing with the the, the throwing of the dice. At, you know, you're, you're, you're excited, you're, you're focusing on it. Is it the same with prayer and intention? Um, <clears throat> it's a little different. So... Let me give you a, a short analogy. So a lot of people keep pet birds, and often they'll put a mirror in the cage with the bird. Now, the mirror is there to keep the bird company. So the bird 
is not smart enough to realize that's a reflection. They think it's another bird. Mm. So they peck at the image and, you know, they squawk at it, they fight with it, they talk to it, and they never really get that what they're seeing is a reflection. Now, to a degree, you know, I have a chapter that talks about, you know, using prayer, using different kinds of meditations to cause this effect. Absolutely, if, you know, you are focused emotionally, you know, using prayer as a format, you will get a reflection back of the environment of what you're focusing on. However, there are hidden contexts in things like prayer. For instance, you're praying to something. So it's like the bird looking in the mirror. What you get back are essay that bear that imprint, that seem to, you know, be reflected by another personality, the outside source that you've been praying to. In the brain, we have networks of what's called mirror neurons. These neurons and areas of your memory can create sort of holographic images of other people, other personalities. That's how you know how somebody else feels or can figure out social relationships. You actually have sort of a computer model of the other person and how they may react resident in your memory. That's how you know what other people might be feeling. When someone uses prayer, they're creating one of these personalities and, you know, as, as something they're directing their energy to. And they project that entire thing en masse out into the environment. And they get back responses that seem to be from whatever they're praying to. One example would be a, a client that one of the paranoid schizophrenic clients I had, who wasn't paranoid schizophrenic, came to me and said, um, you know, you know, and when you get interview with schizophrenic, when, when you're doing an assessment, you know, there's got to be a cluster of things wrong. People don't just come in and report, you know, massive coincidences, you know, without other symptoms if they're actually schizophrenic. So I'm looking at this guy, and he's been diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic with delusions. And I don't see any other symptoms. You know, there's no cognitive functioning losses. There's no hallucinations. There's nothing else going on with the guy. So I said, well, why are you here? And he says, well, you wouldn't believe me anyway. So I said, try me. And he tells me that ever since in his 20s, God has been harassing him with coincidences, talks to him through televisions, through radios. People walk up to the street and ask him for directions, and they're responding to what he's thinking. And, you know, he's sure that God has picked him for some purpose, but it never manifests. And he's been chasing this for 20 years at this point. And, you know, he's lost his jobs because nobody wants to, you know, hear this craziness. Right. His friends have drifted away. It's basically ruined his life. But he had no other symptoms of delusion. So I said, look, Go back to your room, watch TV like you do, and instead of looking for God to be talking to you through the people on the TV or the radio, pretend you're talking to Bugs Bunny. You know, listen for it as if it's a cartoon character. And he comes back the next session and goes, oh my God, I've been listening to my own thoughts. Exactly. The guy was not mentally ill. What happened was, he saw some synchronistic events in the environment, and they seemed to defy cause and effect as we know them. And he thought, how is it possible that this could happen? The only explanation that he had available to him was, well, it must be God doing it. As soon as he thought that, they begin to respond that way because it's reflecting his thought. And he assumed that was a confirmation for the reality of that assumption. 
and he began talking to them. And it literally ruined his life because he walked around through this house of mirrors, not realizing he was talking to himself. Or, which would have been much more fabulous for him, if he realized this was a power that he actually had, he could have been having a lot of fun over the years. You know, but instead he fell into this sort of paranoid delusion mm-hmm. where he was chasing his tail. So what was the outcome of, of the visits with you then? This guy was able to recognize what he was doing. And he was able to, you know, sort of gain control on the fact that he was producing them. You know, and I was able to show him what they're good for. and He got much more functional after that. I've also seen clients who see synchronistic events who are delusional. And the ones that are delusional create mythologies that will not change no matter what you do. In fact, that's sort of the psychiatric definition of a delusion. Somebody believes something that no matter how much proof you give them, you know, otherwise they stick to the belief. It's an intransient belief, sort of a, you know, a thought hallucination. So very much the dividing line for me is, you know, if someone is not open to reasonable doubt, you know, and continues with the belief system, regardless of whether or not, you know, you can offer proof otherwise. Somebody told me that if you do something repeatedly and don't realize it, it's a habit. But when you realize it, that, that you're doing it, it's a choice. But back, going back for a second with the number 11, which is something that gets so many messages all the time, Kirby. Why is it that we all of a sudden, out of the blue, look at our, our watches or, or the computer clock and we see 11? Have you looked into this at all? You know, I know it's called the, the, time, the time prompt theory. And I don't know. Um, I have never experienced it myself. I do know that you can think about that pattern and it'll show up, but you can also think about, you know, the number 22 and have it show up. Yeah. You can think about chess pieces in the environment and have them show up. So I'm not sure if there's some pattern out there or if, you know, it's sort of like don't think about elephants no matter what you do. That's right. And speaking of chess, wasn't it Bobby Fischer who who became paranoid later in life, and, and it, the, the, the conclusion was that because he was playing chess all his life, he was always getting paranoid about the opponent. Is that what happened? That would be my estimation of what happened to him, yeah. Uh, it, the, that example is in the book, and the reason yeah. I use it is because there are so many brilliant chess masters who were ravingly paranoid, you know, and, you know, and afraid of what other people were trying to do to them. And, you know, chess itself is an innately paranoid game. Right. You know, you've got an opponent who has a secret strategy, and they're out to get you. And they're trying to anticipate what you're doing, and you're trying to anticipate what they're doing. So it's sort of a paranoid game. What people then do sometimes, I think the chess masters do, is they project that, you know, game-playing strategy on the external environment, and then the coincidences, the synchronicities of their environment reflect their paranoia back to them, and they get stuck in it. You say, don't believe everything you think, and that our brains edit reality. We, we, we spoke a little bit about this earlier on. Most of what our sensors report get deleted. I'm still a little bit confused as to how this happens. Okay. Think of it this way. The, the, your brain developed to help you survive in the environment. Right. Every single square centimeter of the environment actually has more information and more patterning than you could possibly imagine. If you think of having ever seen uh, an electron microscope image, for instance, 
you can magnify something hundreds of thousands of times and still every little piece is too complex to fully take in. That's sort of the universe we actually live in. Um, the piece that we consider us up in the frontal lobes is there to do something that's mathematically impossible. We're designed to guess. We're designed to make decisions about insufficient information. That's why conscious awareness develops. So um, you have, you're sort of a biomechanical miracle, okay? You have billions of sensory neurons that point out into the environment as your senses. They're all digital. Okay? Nerves operate in on-off positions, basically, little pulses. So you have trillions of bits of information a second flow up to your brain, this unbelievable supercomputer. It takes this digital information and it constructs the reality around you that you see. There is so much information that, for instance, if you were out hunting, trying, you're running through the grass and you're trying to, to determine if that shadow up ahead is an antelope, which means dinner, or is a lion, which means your dinner, mm -hmm. you know, and you wait until you're certain, okay, you're cooked doesn't work. So what we do is that huge amount of the brain that's automated, you know, it takes all this information in and it deletes everything that's not immediately relevant so that you're not overwhelmed with information. It focuses only on, you know, what's immediately of any emotional value to you. Now, a huge amount of this information gets deleted, which leaves massive gaps, you know, in our consciousness in our awareness, and it fills them in with what it thinks is most likely to be useful. Um, an example of this, if you take two of your fingers together, your index and middle finger, and hold them out at arm's length and look at them, that's the actual width of your visual field. That's it. It's a narrow little band. But you have the illusion, as you sit here, of a widescreen view of the room. What happens is your eyes scan in patterns around the room, pick up pieces of this narrow band, and put them in memory. And the automated processes of the brain make a wider panoramic view out of the memory traces that you've put together. The Much of the room that you think you're looking at right now is actually a hallucination that you're holding in memory from the last time your eyes scanned across it. All of our senses work this way. We construct this reality, and we do it very, very efficiently with the least energy needed. Some synchronistic events occur because we add things in. The incomplete pattern, we try to fill in with what's most likely. For instance, whenever you read a book, when adults read, you don't read all the words. In fact, words longer than one syllable, you're more likely just to read the first half of the word and then have your brain fill in the actual word from the context of the sentence it's in. So when you're reading, most of what you're reading is a hallucination caused by the brain. And we deal with our environment that way. Most of what we experience is sort of like photoshopped reality. We're experiencing a representation of things, not the actual things themselves. So there's some wiggle room in there for the brain to highlight patterns, to make illusions of synchronistic events, by, you know, showing us things that we ordinarily wouldn't remember. But there's also this sort of navigation through probability that actually changes the event, maybe by about 5%. So it's a combination. Without that process of elimination, we wouldn't be able to drive a car or a doctor 
couldn't perform an operation on someone because you have to delete all that is irrelevant at that point, right? Absolutely. That's why one reason why focused attention is so such a good method of producing these synchronistic events. You know, if you obsess on a pattern, it appears because you're eliminating all the others. And this may sound funny, but a lot of times, and I don't like to talk about myself, but a lot of times when I have a goal, I look at the end result without filling the, the, the part in the middle. And I imagine myself there in that point Z, and then I start working through the middle parts. And it has worked for me, and I'm sure it could work for, for a lot of people. But how much influence do we have then over the events around us? I think it's about 5% normally. I think it goes up and down. Um, I think that uh, it's useful. I mean, 5% in, you know, on long-term on anything actually can make a huge difference. I don't believe that we create reality. I think that's sort of a wishful thinking that some of the New Agers have. But I think we definitely steer our course through probability, and we have an influence on the reality that we, that we experience. And I think you know, one of the things I'm trying to do with, with this work is give people a context in which this ability can be reasonably understood and used, you know, so that people don't fall off into, like, strange, unfulfillable fantasies about it, but can actually use it as something that we've evolved to do naturally. I remember a couple of years ago doing a, an interview with somebody else who said that sometimes we can ask the spirit world, and you'll be surprised of the answer you get, but most people don't ask. And the next day... Uh, After I listened to that interview at a shopping center, I come out to, to the car, and the car wouldn't start at all. It was dead completely. And I went inside, went back, tried it again for about an hour, and nothing. So I decided to call, call a tow truck company. And as they're bringing their tow, they haven't arrived yet, I decided, I thought about what the person said the night before. You know, maybe ask. You never know what you're going to get. So I asked all right, can you please help me turn on the car? And I was kind of laughing inside, thinking, yeah, right, it's going to turn on. Well, it turned on. I called the tow truck, and I literally called off the dog. So would that be a synchronistic event? You know, I don't know. You know, I, I'm sort of like scientifically and groundedly oriented, and I wasn't there. I mean, I don't, I don't know whether, you know, your starter motor was going out or, you know, I don't know how that works. I do know that the key thing about synchronistic events is the events seem meaningful. That's yes. The, you know, and if it was meaningful for you, I would say it qualifies. Absolutely. And if this is the way our reality works, then why are more people aware of doing it? Uh, I think there's a lot of different explanations for this. I, I think that in our culture, we don't value this. Um, I think that people are taught uh, sort of a cognitive obedience. You know, um, for instance, every religion is sort of based on there's a central authority somewhere that tells you how everything works, and all the power is concentrated there. You know, there's no way to manipulate people or to get them to think in the pattern you want if you're trying to teach them to be empowered themselves. You know, there's no benefit in an organized way to teach people that they are the power they're praying to. You know, there's no way to make a profit on somebody, no way to get them to tithe, no way to have their political influence. If what you're saying is you're responsible for your reality and, you know, these things that are happening, these events are indications of your personal connection to the universe. You 
know, that you don't need us as intermediaries. Not a real popular position to, you know, to, to tout. So, you know, we're trained not to look at this. In less westernized cultures, synchronicity is extremely normal. You know, people are looking for signs and portents and, you know, images in the clouds to tell them which way the deer are running and, you know, reading tortoise shells or, you know, yarrow sticks, you know, because they understand that they can be in communication with parts of themselves that have more information than they do. So, you know, it's depending on whether or not you're actually taught that you're allowed to do this or not. Well, this is why organized religion frowns upon anybody who talks about meditation or altered states of, of consciousness and so on. But I want to understand this. Can you create a synchronistic event by choice? And are they thought projections? Yes, they are. They're very much so. Um, I'll give you an example. When I realized that these are mirrors, that I was walking around these like dozens of events a day, but I was seeing parts of my unconscious process, I decided to, to test it out. So one of the first things I did was, I'm a chess player. So I set up a chess board in my mind, and I said, okay, I want to play chess with synchronistic events. I want them to respond so intelligently that they're giving me the opponent's chess moves. So within a few days, I'd met a couple of guys named, named Bishop, and there were you know knights and checkerboard symbols, and all this stuff was happening. So I asked for a first move, and I got a first opening chess move out of a coincidence. And... I got three moves into this game of playing with the environment, and the game fell apart. And, you know, it would just be still chess symbols, but I couldn't get, like, a game out of it. And the reason was, I'm just not smart enough to hold that image in my mind. You know, I don't have the kind of brain that, without a physical chessboard, can keep track of all this. So what I was looking at was a reflection of my thoughts that showed the limits of my own intelligence, basically. And that's the way it's been turning out for about the 25 or 30 years I've been playing with this. You know, it never does anything that's more intelligent than the person that's projecting the stuff. So, you know, I'm very fond of shamanism. You know, I love mythology. You know, I love, you know, comparative religion. But I just don't see that. The concrete thing I see is that we project what we're thinking about, that it reflects in the environment and that we can mistake that for reality. The thing I really love about the scientific method is that science does not tell us what's real. Science tells us what's most probably correct, and then it gives us even a margin of error on that. So it's not a solid system. You know, it gives re open room for interpretation. I think that once somebody says they believe something, or they have absolute faith in something, I literally think they've stopped thinking. It's like the work of uh, Dr. Claude Swanson, the synchronized uh, universe science of the paranormal, the Princeton eggs, and there are other scientific studies being made out there that show that when there's people thinking about an event, we can actually alter it. But we have to take our one and only intermission, Dr. Surprise. By the way, folks, this is a great book. I highly recommend it. And as you know, I don't have to tell anybody in the audience that the word synchronicity is used on this show pretty much every time. The book, Synchronicity, The Art of Coincidence, Change and Unlocking Your Mind. How can people get it? Uh, it's available on Amazon Amazon, and Barnes and & Noble. And um, if they you know, Google it, it'll show up all over the place. 
And oh, it can also, by the way, it's also available in like Nook and Kindle and electronic format. Great. And your website, howsynchronicityworks.com, is also linked on our website. Folks, don't go anywhere. We have so much more to talk about with Dr. Kirby Surprise. When we come back, I want to talk about more of practical ways in which we can make this happen to all of us. Don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening. We'll continue this interview with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the member section. Enjoy.
This is Jason Moore from Urban Talk, and you're listening to Veritas. Veritas. 